Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a jodcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Hazel, we're two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and domestic history and experimental archaeology and just making things. And before our main topic, we normally start by talking about what we've been making recently. Um, so do you want to start? Um, I've mostly just been working on existing projects, but my first successful soap swirl finally set, so I got to cut it, and now I have a fire-themed soap, and it smells of smoke, and it's got glitter on top, like a dragon's hoard, and it's called Dragon Fire, and I'm very happy. Oh, yes. That is, that is soap goals. Um, obviously, I will be sending Hazel a bar. Oh, yes, I thought that was just for, for your other D&D group. I've got to send you one. Oh, That's just the rules. <gasps> Am I a valued customer? <laughs> <laughs> you pay me in friendship. <laughs> I wish that was legal tender. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome. Um, yeah, I have not had such dramatic soap-making um, exploits. But I have been, I've started knitting the vest of my project that oh, I mentioned last time, where I've, I've spun the yarn and I've dyed the yarn using hibiscus flowers, and now I've started knitting. And it's, it's going pretty well. It's a while since I've knitted a garment, so um, I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants gauge-wise. Um, because for, for any non-knitters out there, your gauge is is the tension. So if you if your gauge is too small, your garment will come out too small. So you kind of have to measure it first. Well, you don't have to, but a lot of people like to. Um, so I yeah, my gauge was off, but I couldn't really be bothered. So I just I'm just knitting a bigger size. So hopefully it will work out. <laughs> um, I I you can always just frog it and try again. Yeah, that's a nice thing about yarn crafts, isn't it? You if you can just rip it out and try again. Like, no, no failure is permanent. There you go. That's a sound bite. There's there's one to to do a sampler of. I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I know what the topic is going to be today and I although it's very interesting is it because i said jodcast it is because you said jodcast <laughs> because we talked about this subject um and i didn't necessarily know you would be doing it today but i sure do now so uh go ahead yeah it's it's jeans and denim and that that whole that whole jam <laughs> i was I was just kind of, you know, when there's a pun in your speechless. I didn't do a pun <laughs> that time. It was delayed pun reaction. <laughs> <laughs> so here's here's a fun game that I always like to play. When do you think the first fabrics known as jean? arrived in Britain. Oh, that's an interesting one. Because if you'd said US, I might have been able to take a guess, but 
I'm gonna say earlier than expected. So like, okay, before the US existed. Okay, that is a lot earlier than I expected. Okay. So is this like what we would term denim? Or is it just like any any cotton twill? Um this is okay, so denim mm-hmm. um comes from uh denim or from Nimes. Ah, in, in France. Mm-hmm. Wow. Whereas, um, Jean is from uh, Jean, the French name for Genoa. Oh. So originally Jean would be, um, yeah, it was a medium quality uh, cotton twill, whereas denim was higher quality. Oh, so jeans and denim are actually kind of different things. They they became interchangeable later because it, like I said, it's basically two qualities of the same fabric. Right. I always Just thought jeans made nicer fabric than Neem did. Oh, I always thought jeans was the garment and not the fabric, but that's really interesting that they are both the fabric. Indeed. So when do you think Jean Fustian arrived in Britain? Oh. Uh, well, in that case, it would have to be after Western access to cotton. So mid-18th century? 1576. What? Okay, I I don't know anything about textile history anymore. Tell me more about jeans. Well, you, well, with the access to cotton thing, you have to remember that cotton evolved simultaneous. Like, there's wild cotton, not just from the Americas, but also from Africa and India. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in 1576, a shipment of Jean Fustian arrived in Barnstable. Okay. Um, it was generally dyed with indigo at this time. Um, okay, so the the iconic, like dark blue, was a part of it that early. Yeah, there's actually um, 17th century Italian paintings of people wearing blue denim. Wow. And it appears in um, examples of traditional Genoese dress. Oh my goodness, okay. So what kind of clothing was it used for at the time? So because you could wear... um, I'm going to use jean and denim... I'm just going to call them all denim now unless I specify otherwise, because otherwise it's going to be very confusing. Okay. Um, so you could wear denim uh, wet or dry. You probably noticed if you wear denim jeans, they get heavy, but you don't get soaked through when you get wet. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Genoese Navy actually wore, wore their version of denim. Oh, wow. 
um, whereas the higher quality denim you'd use for um, sort of outer garments like smocks. Okay. And overalls, actually. Like that we're makes getting, sense. We're getting into dungarees very early. <laughs> that makes sense because I, I did know that it was originally um, sort of workwear material. Mm-hmm. I had no idea it was that early, though. That's really cool. I'm having bit like I, I would love to see any depiction of the Genoese Navy in denim uniforms in the 17th century. There are paintings, I cannot find the name of the artist, but there's a painter from the 17th century referred to as the master of blue jeans, who paints people in denim a lot. Okay. Um, yeah, there's examples on the uh, Gallery Canesso website, if you're interested. Okay, yeah, I'll um, check that out later. Interesting, dungaree is, um, again, basically the same fabric, but made in India. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're not sure exactly when it became the name for the clothing, but we know that by... 1891, Rudyard Kipling is referring to dungarees as in the item of clothing. Okay. Um, so yeah, jeans referring to the trousers pops up in 1795. That is still pretty early for jeans, the garment. Is incredibly early. Um, but yeah, the this um, banker and his brother were selling um, were selling clothing made from uh, blue de jean <laughs> or, blue, or blue jean fabric. Oh wow! Two soldiers wow. in in eighteen hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> so between that and the Genoese army, there's a definite military association as well as just sort of general hard physical labor yeah which i mean there's a lot of overlap there especially at that point wow um yeah so it's it's stays mostly a military thing in the early 19th century and then levi strauss whose name might sound familiar to you Rings a bell. Mm-hmm. Mr. Levi's. <laughs> um, starts a business selling... Yeah, it's the, a general goods store, but includes selling bolts of cloth, including blue de jean. Mm-hmm. Um, and a tailor that he sells fabric to asks to bring him in as a business partner selling denim jean fab um clothing reinforced with copper rivets to reduce <sighs> to reduce tearing and i mean most jeans that you get now still have these rivets in them 
Yeah, there is something more than just being denim trousers that makes it jeans, right? It is, it is all the little metal pieces. Yeah, like this this is the point where jeans TM actually TM um <laughs> Levi's jeans become a thing. Right. They received a US patent for um putting the rivets on pockets to stop the pockets tearing off in 1873. Oh. Okay, I, my original thinking was like 19th century, um, but I just didn't realise the origins went back further. Um, you were definitely right in terms of what we would think of as modern genes. Yeah, yeah, like it's, it's amazing that it's because of the fabric and not the garment. Mm. Okay, so where did it go from there? So they start mass producing these jeans in 1873. Interesting, there are women's ones as well. Because, okay. you know, women were also doing heavy labour. Mm. But they zipped up at the side rather than at the front. Ah. Which seems to just be a fashion thing with women's, a lot of women's clothing fastening at the side at that point so you could do it up yourself. Mm, yeah, you have a lot of back fastenings that you need help with. Mm. And obviously there are anatomical reasons a man might want to be able to just undo the front of his trousers. I've noticed that a lot of older vintage women's trousers and shorts seem to fasten at the side rather than the front. Yeah, it was just a thing for a while, in the, mm. especially in the 19th century. So yeah. Um, Manufacture of jeans kind of tapers off a little bit in World War II because obviously they need to focus on making other things. Um, but they start making what's called waist overalls. Or the idea is they're overalls, but they only go up to your waist, which is basically, you know, high-waisted jeans. Yeah. Um, oh, so were they low-waisted before? Or, or just, like, normal trouser height, I guess. They were just kind of normal trouser height, whereas these okay. went right up to the waist, which is, is quite high for trousers. Uh, I was just loving my image of Victorian hipster jeans. <laughs> that is a beautiful image. But no, this is sort of waist versus belly button, kind of a matter of an inch or so. Okay. Um... But yeah, so US soldiers would wear these waist waist high overalls. Oh wow. And often wore them off duty. Ah. Is that where the fashion came from? Mostly. Okay. So so historically a lot of fashion is influenced by what the military is wearing. Yeah. Yeah, like the sort of 18th century or, or I guess 19th century as well, mock military jackets in women's dresses comes to mind. Mm. 
I mean, stuff like aviator glasses as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a modern one. Um, so in the 1955 film Rebel Without a Cause, which is very good, uh, James Dean plays a middle-class teen who wears jeans as part of his sort of bad boy aesthetic. Oh. He's like, ah, oh, I'm dressing like a, like a regular working stiff, like a soldier. <laughs> oh, kind of like how camo- camouflage clothing is fashionable now yeah it's basically the equivalent of having a film come out about a middle-class kid who wears camouflage all the time uh-huh. <laughs> but because james dean was this sex symbol it became really popular for young men to wear jeans wow. and by, by the 70s it was completely normal at least okay. in the u.s in Japan, less so because there was an incident where a student at Osaka University was um, she was told off by her professor for wearing jeans in the classroom, and then they protested him, and it became a whole thing. Okay, but yeah, like that's basically when the whole denim is normal casual wear for just everyone really became a thing is in the 70s that's really that's quite a vast uptake in terms of like becoming normal casual wear from what was a working garment oh it absolutely is and i mean then you get some you get things like uh david bowie's the gene genie Mm -hmm. just a song about like the concept of americana almost and sort of the spread of American culture, mm-hmm. which, as you can guess from the title, is also about jeans. <laughs> and you get, um, you know, famous musicians um, being seen in these tiny little jean shorts. I can't remember who it was that I found a picture of wearing tiny little jean shorts in the 70s, but it was a thing. Oh, wow. So, like, jorts are also really old, <laughs> relatively. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. In the 70s and 80s, you kind of get high fashion getting involved in jeans. So, I mean, you'd ha- you had places talking about um, distressed jeans. Like, in the 30s, distressed jeans were being talked about in Vogue. Okay. As, as a fashion statement. Must have been quite a statement at the time, though. Oh, definitely in the thirties. Like you're wearing, you're wearing the working class clothes, and you're intentionally making them look even scruffier. Yeah. But, but I mean, that's also when you start to get a lot of sort of cowboy films. So there's ah. a bit of kind of related to like you want to look like like the cool cowboys. That would make sense. Um, so yeah, you get, um, the fashion house, uh, Fiorucci in the late seventies brings out the Buffalo 70 jeans, which are skinny jeans. Oh. Which, you know, you contrast that with 
um, the sort of bell-bottom jeans that were big at the time. Yeah. And you got got the sort of people that went to Studio 54 wearing skinny jeans. You get Calvin Klein models wearing jeans that actually show off their shape. Okay, so there's like multiple styles of jean. Um, Not just, I guess, the ones you would think of as being from that era yeah like we're we're definitely in jeans are just another kind of trouser at this mm. point and i mean this and then this is also the point where you get sort of as a hippie thing you get things like denim skirts coming in you get denim jackets uh, sort of. i guess technically denim jackets coming back and also denim skirts coming back because as i say there's examples of traditional genoese dress in the 1800s that involve a denim skirt. Okay. Uh, so once jeans make the leap, like more workwear things start becoming fashionable. Yeah, I. it does seem to be tied to the whole 60s, 70s, ah, the working man, we must stand in solidarity and all this stuff, which again kind of fits in with the rebel without a cause thing, I think, mm-hmm. of almost idolizing the concept of being working class it's interesting that jeans then became such a symbol of like capitalist elitism Mm, that yeah because the the fashion labels get hold of it uh people like calvin klein start making designer jeans Mm -hmm. um there's a good quote actually from um, Yves Saint Laurent in 1983. I've often said that I wish I had invented blue jeans. They have expression, modesty, sex appeal, simplicity, all that I hope for in my clothes. Oh. Like people are just like worshipping at the altar of jeans. <laughs> yeah, that's like a really beautiful quote about jeans. <laughs> yeah. But then of course you get you know you get the 90s everything is denim, double denim, triple <laughs> denim, it's just everywhere. And it starts to regain that kind of slovenly uh association. I guess definitely the whole like baggy clothes thing and yeah, like grunge and I guess it has that association. So then you get, I mean, now you get people who are like phasing denim out of their wardrobes mm-hmm. because it's it's scruffy. Oh, interesting. But you also get people making beautiful like art out of just experimenting with the concept of jeans. Like, um, there's an artist called Alexandra Armata, who I encourage you to look up. Okay. Um, who got 70 plus pairs of jeans, and during lockdown, for th- every day for 30 days, made just weird looking pairs of jeans and jorts and jerts. Okay, that is amazing, but I hate that the product is called Quarantine. 
<laughs> but yeah, look look it up if you can. Cause there's some really amazing stuff. Yeah. Oh, that sounds really cool. So like, people are are still. I mean, I was gonna say people are still reinventing genes because of that, but people are also reinventing genes in really odd ways. You might remember a couple of years ago the ones with the instead of a worn knee with a plastic knee window. I don't, what? I don't know if you remember those. What? No, I don't. Did you not see these? No. I don't want my jeans to be a window to my knees. No, it was um Topshop was selling them in um okay. in twenty seventeen. Oh, well, of course they would. <laughs> wow. I definitely recall the era of the jegging, which, I mean, none of those were made of denim, right? Generally not, no. Um, it doesn't stretch. Yeah. It quite stretchy. It was kind of a faux denim. Yeah. Yeah, I've... I've sent Hazel a picture of what were officially sold as the clear knee mom jeans because oh I can't goodness. believe you missed them. That doesn't look particularly comfortable. No, I I worry about like sweating and fogging up the plastic panel. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's not for me, but you know, each to their own, Jean. Um, so, slight side note, now that we're up to the present. Um, I was trying to find the earliest use of the word jort, because especially those who are on Tumblr will be very aware of just changing the first letter of anything made of denim to a J is just a thing, dare I say, a jeem. Um... The earliest I could find was 2005, but that was just just um, Google Engram Viewer because it's surprisingly hard to find anything that will acknowledge the use of the word jort in an official dictionary context. <laughs> um, but I did find out that in 2017, a band called Mom Jeans wrote and released a song called Jorts. Which was the same year that one of the one of the Kardashians, I don't remember which one, wore jorts to the Cannes Film Festival. Amazing. Is the song any good? Have you managed to listen to it? Um, it's not for me. Okay. The, the band is described as emo rock, which isn't really my thing. Okay. But you know, it's it's technically it's fine. I'm sure if you like that sort of thing, you may well enjoy the song Jorts by Mom Jeans. Oh but yeah, that, like, I still like denim. I don't... I think it's unfair for people to call it scruffy because it's just fabric. Well, yeah. And I, like, I suppose... There's an element of classism there, I think. Mm. Which, like, I mean, there also was in the popularisation in a weird way. Yeah. It's kind of one side saying, I want to look like the working class, they're so cool, and the other side saying, oh no, you look working class. 
But then also, like, I suppose Levi's, Levi's, which once sold to the working class, are now really expensive. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I suppose that's that's the cycle with a lot of things. Um, it is. Also, we've, we've talked about this this phenomenon before with oysters and things. Yeah, and what is described as scruffy is is very subjective as well because the a lot of the distressed genes, despite being what you might traditionally think of as scruffy, are really expensive, like designer. Oh yeah, um, like distressed jeans generally cost more, I guess, because it's more work to make them and well, then dress them. Yeah, they like it's apart. it's more labor. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas the the... is that aesthetic of having worked hard and having worn through clothes? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can at... get that for free just by falling over. <laughs> well, yeah. But at the risk of getting very political about trousers, that that was my brief history of jeans. I liked it. <laughs> it was it was kind of wilder than I was expecting. And now yeah, I want to see. It was fun to research. <laughs> I want to see the historical denim. Hello, I'm Mod Pencil from Trolley Bad RPG Ideas. If you'd like to hear discussions of ideas such as what if in my urban fantasy game magic turns out to not be real, and what is the best rules for an O, then listen to the Trolley Bad podcast, which is available on everywhere podcasts are and also YouTube. Or check out our Tumblr and Twitter. So, what, what is our local larder this week? Okay, it's a very bite-sized one. Um, <laughs> okay. About puns? We, no, well, well, I'll leave that up to you, but I have a feeling that um, they may not fit the demographic of this podcast. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to take you out of the realm of the gene and lead you to the domain of the Dorset Knob. Okay. Okay. So, um, I recently went camping in Dorset for the weekend, which was very lovely. Um, I haven't been camping in ages, and it was it was a really good time. Um, and I was sort of looking up stuff to do in the area, like as you will, um, maybe any local foods that we could try because we're all about regional foods on this podcast and one of them that I found out about was the Dorset Knob now the Dorset Knob is kind of a biscuit it's kind of a those local foods yeah it's kind of a biscuit bread but more of a biscuit i'll just i'll just explain how it's made which is probably easier um it's it's about they're about the size of a scone more or less um a small one um although they can be smaller as well um they're made from sorry but the size of a small scone or smaller is the least helpful size description (laughs) okay 
<laughs> I mean, I, it's hard to describe exactly, but just... It's, around the size of a scone, I guess, depending on how big you like your scones. Anyway, um, <laughs> they're made from bread dough with extra sugar and butter, and they're baked three times. So they they apparently get... I was unfortunately not able to get hold of any on my visit to Dorset, which is a travesty, and I will definitely make up for it next time. Um, but we just didn't have time. Um, and yeah, so they're, they're apparently just very, very dry and crumbly um, because of this extra baking. Yeah, because before you said baked three times, it almost sounded like a brioche. Exactly, yeah. So like kind of almost a rich dough, but then just baked really dry. So they do last a bit longer. Um, they are called the Dorset Knob um, because, well, there's multiple explanations for this. Um, but the most, the two most common ones that I found was because they're about the size of a doorknob, uh, and also because they look like Dorset knob buttons, which are another interesting thing we can talk about on the podcast at some point but um but basically they're just a local um manufacturer of button um so yeah that's that's where the name comes from but as you can imagine it has uh been a very popular joke amongst like school kids for years um <laughs> I couldn't find anything sort of definitive on how old they are as a regional food. Um, but they seem to be at least 19th century because it's it's noted that they were one of the favourite foods of the author Thomas Hardy, who famously lived in Dorset, um, according to his parlour maid. So you kind of need to eat them with something um because they're they're so hard and dry um originally they were made with like leftover bread dough that had kind of you know fermented a little bit um and the extra sugar and the butter would be added and then they would be made into the dorset knobs and they sugar's almost preventing it from being a sourdough um yeah and so they would be they would be sort of used to use up the leftover bread dough, but then also you can keep them in the cupboard for a while. Um, and apparently the farming families would eat them for breakfast by like soaking them in like pouring tea and sugar over them, which is sound like the worst thing. It's not like almost cereal, really. Yeah, <laughs> it's a weird Weetabix. Yeah, um, but they are more commonly eaten with cheese now, especially like blue cheese, which sounds quite nice. Mm. Cheese and crunch. Who doesn't love a cheese and crunch? Exactly. Um, as far as I know, 
There is only one commercial producer of the Dorset Knob left, and that is Moore's Biscuits, which uh, had a shop in the village of Morecambe Lake um, near Bridport in Dorset. Um, but that closed a few years ago, um, and now they have a shop in Bridport. And they've been making them since the 1850s, I believe. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but the bakery itself was established in 1880. Um, and they, the Dorset Knob is not the only thing they produce, but it is one of the most I, famous. I that part. Um, sorry? I said I, I did assume that part. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, but I I mean one of the reasons is because there's not like because of the, the process is quite time consuming obviously you have to like make the special dough that has to be shaped by hand and baked three times and it's not really um, cost effective to make them all year round um, so they're apparently only produced during January and February and and then that is the stock of Dorset knobs for the year. Um, so they are apparently quite well known in Dorset, um, and relatively beloved. And um, there are we we love a good regional food related sport competition on this podcast. Oh, do tell! <laughs> and there is. There is a good one in this local larder. Uh, the Dorset Knob Throwing Competition is an official event uh, that takes place every year in the village of Catterstock. Um, and apparently it is now the Dorset Knob Throwing and Froome Valley Food Fest. So sadly... out a little bit. <laughs> sadly, well, they made it like a whole it's a it's a day out okay um, according to the the website dorsetknobthrowing.co.uk uh the dorset knob throwing event is packed with fun attractions and also hosts Froome valley food fest so apparently um because they're so kind of hard and just about the right size um they're really satisfying to throw and do quite well <laughs> So again, according to this website, the um, the format of the competition is three knobs are thrown underarm and the furthest is measured at its final resting place. Unlimited entries are available per contestant and there are no age restrictions. So it is fun for all the family. That's beautiful and I want to see a toddler throw a biscuit so much right now. I know! There is a picture at the top of this webpage of a small child joyfully hurling a Dorset knob through the air. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is also, and I will, I will link this on the podcast, there is a promotional film. A promotional short film posted on YouTube for the Dorset knob throwing competition. So I'm sure you will all want to have a look at that. It is amazing. It's beautiful. Um, and they are holding the event next year. I think they've had to cancel it for, for a couple of years. But um, 
it is being held on the 1st of May 2022. If any of you find yourselves in the area, I, if, if anyone does go to that, please, please show us. Will you Sounds be going? Amazing. Probably not, because that is also the Hastings May Day Festival, and I don't like to miss that. Ah, uh, that's fair. But I don't know, maybe maybe one year. I think it would be worth the trip. Mm. <laughs> maybe we should uh, put it on the Bread and Thread road trip. <laughs> well, one day this podcast will be huge and we will go on that road trip. <laughs> So yeah, that is a, you now know of the Dorset Knob and I hope that you're happy. So if you want to help us get one step closer to being able to do a Bread and Thread road trip in, in the far distance future, uh, we are on Patreon where you can get access to a Discord server, monthly recipes, and if you give us... £10 a month or more, we will make a bonus episode about anything that you want, whether or not it's relevant to the subject of the podcast. <laughs> That's uh, patreon.com slash breadandthread. We are also on Twitter at breadandthread, where you can find um, teasers for upcoming episodes, uh, things that we talk about on the podcast. We will link there and um, we sort of generally keep up with things in the domestic history world there um we are also on youtube bread and thread as well we have pretty solid branding um you can find um audio episodes up on there uh and tumblr i believe yep tumblr also at bread and thread um, if you have an episode suggestion or just want to say hi, want to berate me for not being able to pronounce French despite studying it for five years in school, I was not good at French. Um, you can message us on one of those or email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. And we will see you next time. <laughs>